Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 88, Claudius Ptolemy and the Tetrabiblos. We first met Claudius Ptolemy, the most important authority on astrology and astronomy from the 2nd century onward. Right through the Middle Ages and into the early modern period, in the Greek, Latin, and Islamicate worlds, we first met him way back in episode 42. Now, situated as we are in the 2nd century, when the great Ptolemy lived, the time has come to revisit this consummate authority. Claudius Ptolemy was a scientist, a geographer, astronomer, and astrologer. He wasn't primarily a scientific innovator. Speaking generally, his work is more a synthesis of previous developments in Greek astronomy and geographic discovery rather than a fresh departure. In other words, he's working within a system that's already pretty much been established. Although, as we shall see, he has his own theoretical take on things. Still, he did make astronomical observations and in other ways was actively involved in scientific practice. So he wasn't just tabulating stuff that had come before. He was actively engaging in what we would call experiment. He lived in Alexandria, predictably, still the center for astronomical science it had become in the Hellenistic period, probably from around 90 or maybe 100 to 168 CE. We're not sure exactly about the dates, but we have a pretty good rough idea. Now, the first thing to make clear is that Ptolemy has nothing to do with the Ptolemies. These were the reigning dynasty of the Hellenistic kingdom of Egypt and associated territories, which reigned from just after the death of Alexander the Great in 323 BCE, until the defeat of Antonia Cleopatra at the Great Battle of Actium in 31 BCE, at which point Egypt came under the Roman jurisdiction, being the last of the Hellenistic kingdoms to fall to the Roman yoke. So they were the Ptolemies, named after Ptolemaeus, uh, Alexander's general who founded the dynasty, but he is Ptolemy. Now, how he got this name, we don't know, and maybe he was somehow descended from the Ptolemies, maybe it was a very common name in Egypt, outside our bailiwick, but it's worth stressing the point that Ptolemy is not one of the Ptolemies, although he has been thought to have been so in the past, resulting in a widespread belief in medieval times that our Ptolemy was, as well as being the foremost authority on matters astronomical, a reigning king of Egypt. He wasn't. What he was is the foremost medieval authority on celestial matters from antiquity. It's not that he was the best astronomer of antiquity. As scholarship has shown, a lot of his stellar observations were pretty off the mark. And anyway, the geocentric model that he followed was not even the best geocentric model out there, never mind the heliocentric model of Aristarchus of Samos and other greats of ancient astronomy who were able to break free of the idea that the Earth must be at the center of everything and get closer to the kind of modeling we find in modern astronomy, which is, let's face it, much more accurate than ancient astronomy. But for whatever reason, Ptolemy's work had staying power, becoming truly authoritative under the Abrahamic regimes of the Middle Ages and well into the age of the telescope. The reasons for this preeminence are not really certain, although it's plausible to conjecture that his work, his astrology in particular, was deemed acceptable and preeminent either, one, because it was largely Aristotelian in its conception, 
And so as Aristotle grew in prominence, and even in orthodox credentials, Ptolemy came along for the ride. Two, because his astrology is naturalistic, again following Aristotelian ideas of astral causation, and so could be considered an entirely natural science without any whiff of the demonic about it. Three, perhaps because Ptolemy laid out his work along reasonably accessible logical lines, he was a decent textbook writer, in other words, and this led to his works being adopted quite widely. As we'll see in the case of astrology, um, ancient handbooks can be exceedingly dense and impenetrable, sometimes designedly so, and since Ptolemy's is relatively straightforward and accessible, it might have led to its popularity. And four, maybe because his conception of fate is fairly weak compared to the full-blooded determinism found in Stoicism and in many classical astrologers. This conditional fatalism, which we'll get to in this episode, made his thought conducive to Christianity, for example, and Islam, both of which balance divine omnipotence with an emphasis on human actions being either freely chosen, as in the case of much Christian theory, or at least culpable in some way, such that the idea of divine judgment makes sense, as in Islam. So probably his enduring popularity was a result of all of these factors, and perhaps chance played a role as well. But whatever the exact reasons for it, we'll return to the extensive afterlife of his works near the end of this episode. First, though, let's discuss his two most important works, the Almagest and the Tetrabiblos. The first of these concerns astronomy, and the second, astrology. Indeed, it may be that Ptolemy's separate influential treatments of these subjects are part of the story of how the single science of astronomy, astrology, developed into two distinct sciences. Um, Ptolemy himself makes the distinction between the two, although he clearly views them as related sciences or maybe even branches of the same science. But he puts, as we shall see, astronomy on a slightly higher register of reliability and provability than astrology. Let's talk about the Almagest first of all, since it's of less specific importance to the story of Western esotericism than the Tetrabiblos, but still needs a little discussion, and then we'll get on to the Tetrabiblos, the really good stuff. So, Almagest is a very strange title for a Greek work on astronomy. This is because it is not Greek, it is a Latin corruption of an Arabic corruption of Greek. Originally, the work in Greek was known either as Mathematike Syntaxis or simply as the Syntaxis, and this means something like comprehensive mathematical treatise. And we recall that the word Mathematikos in Greek often also means astrological, astronomical in our period, so it could also be taken to be comprehensive mathematical, astronomical treatise. The work is basically about what we would call astronomy and mathematics useful for astronomy, such as geometric models for planetary movements and things like that. The syntaxis was also called at some point Hemegale Syntaxis, the great comprehensive treatise. And as we know, titles in antiquity could be very fluid, so works didn't necessarily have a single title. One of the titles under which this work traveled was the great comprehensive treatise, and this Greek title was sort of phonetically adapted into Arabic, Hemegale becoming Al-Majisti. And when it was brought into Latin in the 12th century from Arabic, remember most medieval Latin translations from Greek were actually translations from 
Arabic translations of Greek works, sometimes even Arabic translations of Syriac works, which were translations of Greek works, the Latinate world took al-majesty to be an actual title of some sort and named the thing al-magestum, hence the English almagest. We really have no reason to keep this multiply corrupted name, but some Latin names, like Avicenna for Ibn Sina and many others, have been around so long that you can't really dislodge them anymore, so we still talk about the Almagest. Anyhow, none of this is really to the point, but here at the Schwepp we are suckers for a good mistranslation story. The Almagest is what you might call a manual, or even a textbook, on the synthesis of Hellenistic astronomy, with Aristotelian leanings, which are specific to it and not universal in post-Hellenistic astronomy. The popularity of Ptolemy's work, however, would ensure that the geocentric Aristotelian model, on which see episodes 40 and 41 of the podcast, would end up crowding out the competition and become the Western model of the heavens until telescopic observations made that sort of thing untenable. Medieval Islamicate astronomers had already been bucking against the geocentric model for centuries at that point, but that's a story for a much later episode. In the Almagest, you will find a model of an Aristotelian cosmos, the famous star catalog, which gives a kind of stellar cartography, accounts of eclipses, mathematical formulae for predicting stellar motions, an explanation for the ecliptic and the stellar equator, etc., etc. In short, a model of the synthetic Hellenistic cosmos, the world in which pre-modern Western esoteric thought took place for the most part, especially after the second century. Worth reading for anyone trying to get their thinking into a pre-modern headspace when interpreting esoteric texts. And we should emphasize here, this is a work of science. It uses mathematics and geometry very extensively and uses proofs when appropriate. However, as we mentioned earlier, Ptolemy was not able to make particularly good observations. He didn't have the technical means to do so. And moreover, he seems to have been, let's say, not a mathematical genius. So it's science, but it's not maybe cutting edge or top-of-the-line science. Now, one of the things that an Aristotelian cosmos makes possible is a naturalistic account of astrology. And this brings us to the Tetrabiblos, Ptolemy's great work on astrology. The Tetrabiblos's title means the four books, and it was also called Apotelismatica in Greek, which means something like outcomes, as in outcomes of this or that planetary influence vis-a-vis -vis this or that horoscopic chart sort of thing. And obviously in Latin, it's called the quadripartitum, the, the four-parter, which is just a translation of tetrabiblos. Let's talk about the book's structure and its theoretical stance, and finally allude to its enormous far-reaching influence. We'll be quoting from Robbins's Loeb translation and what follows. There are more up-to-date translations out there which are listed in the bibliography accompanying this episode, but Robbins is good enough for our purposes and he has the virtue of being out of copyright and freely available online, which means uh, listeners can just quickly check him out and read along. So, structure and theory. The Tetrabiblos is unsurprisingly divided into four books. The first deals with introductory and theoretical matters, principles and techniques of astrology, why astrology is helpful, and so forth. Book two deals with universal or mundane astrology, Catholicon in Greek. This is where broad-scale phenomena are governed by the stars, things like plagues, political upheavals, that sort of thing. 
This kind of astrology forecasts events on the horizon about which you can do absolutely nothing. They are fated, or rather, the causes of them are so powerful that nothing can override their power. More on fate and causal uh, matters in a moment. Books three and four concern horoscopic astrology. Book three, looking at the way the natal stars give predispositions to individuals. You were born under Aries with a strong Mars, so you will be a very hot-headed person, that sort of thing. And book four, dealing with so-called accidentals, things like wealth and other things arising in the lifetime of the horoscopic client. Now, these are complete oversimplifications. Actually, the examples he gives in the technical side of things are very, very complex. But this is a basic four-book breakdown of the work. Now, book one is of the greatest interest to us because it gives a lot of really interesting philosophical and theoretical background to Ptolemy's system. Students of astrology will find a huge amount of valuable technical material in the following three books, but we are mostly interested here in the theoretical backing to the art of astrology rather than its technical details, so we shall be concentrating on book one for the most part. Although I should say that there's a lot of theory to be found in the other three books. The introduction to book one is very informative in particular. Ptolemy in it refers to the Almagest, saying that the science outlined there is superlatively sound, based as it is on mathematical principles and observations. And he frames this second work, the Tetrabiblos, in terms of that first work as follows, quote, We shall now give an account of the second and less self-sufficient method in a properly physical way, so that one whose aim is the truth might never compare its perceptions with the sureness of the first unvarying science, for he ascribes to it the weakness and unpredictability of material qualities found in individual things, nor yet refrain from such investigation as is within the bounds of possibility, when it is so evident that most events of a general nature draw their cause from the enveloping heavens. End of quote. So, note that Ptolemy is promising to deliver astrology in a properly physical way. What does this mean? Well, he goes on to do so, and he's basically modeling the stars as naturalistic causes governing the four primary qualities of hot, cold, wet, and dry down here in the sublunary world. So he's actually taking a number of stands here, which is worth kind of explicating from what he's saying. Firstly, as we saw in episode 42, there was a perfectly respectable school of thought in antiquity that regarded the stars not as causes of events, but as kind of synchronistic signs. You can predict the future based on their movements, but not because they cause the things that happen in the future, but because they sort of depict them ahead of time. In our discussion of Stoicism, we looked at a theoretical framework for this sort of thinking about divination and why it works. And Stoic ideas filtered into astrology in a big way in the Roman period, so it shouldn't surprise us that this idea of stellar phenomena as signs was a major school of thought among astrologers. But Ptolemy, following Aristotle over the Stoics, is going for the causal school of thought, and also for the sub-school, which theorizes astral influences. The stars and planets are basically sending out like rays or some other kind of emanations. We never get a definition in Ptolemy of what these influences are made of, but they are physical, causal connections of some kind. And these influence the material world down here. Saturn might cause things to become cold and dry, for example, but Mars will preeminently cause heat and dryness. 
too much of either, and you'll need a dose of Venus to moisten things up. This is the general kind of idea. Those familiar with later traditions of astral magic, astral medicine, and especially astral talisman making will immediately see the significance of this move for those branches of Western esotericism. If the stars are sending down rays or transmissions or whatever of this or that quality, it should be possible to harness the astral influences you want. Uh, for example, by grabbing as much Venus as possible to counteract all the Saturn in your birth chart. By, for example, making a talisman, which naturally amplifies the astral qualities you need more of. To take a contrary example, first astrologers like Vettius Valens, for whom the influence of the stars can be summed up in one word, fate, the making of talismans in astrological medicine would not make a lot of sense. Fate is fate. So we see how important for later esotericism Ptolemy's naturalistic account was. He opened up a door for human intervention in the course of events, where a more hard fatalist system would value astrological prediction chiefly as a means for sort of preparing yourself for what was certainly coming down the pike, no matter what you did about it. And as we mentioned earlier, this opening for human intervention also made this way of viewing astrology more acceptable to monotheist systems which had to have some aspect of human free will in them to make sense theologically. Note too that Ptolemy in this passage is subordinating astrology to astronomy, noting that it is a science, but not as fundamentally invariable a science as astronomy. Actually, he refers to it as a method. He's also hedging the degree of accuracy to which it can hope to attain. This being done, however, he will go on in Book 1 to give numerous arguments and proofs, if one chooses to accept them as such, that astrology can and indeed must, by physical law, be a true science capable of genuine predictions which are not the result of chance. Now, let's just back up and review the kind of cosmos we're dealing with here. The cosmos described mathematically and observationally in the Almagest, and also outlined in Book 1 of the Tetrabilos. The Earth is at the middle of the cosmos, and is primarily made out of the element Earth, obviously, and it's surrounded by three elemental zones of water, air, and fire. These are like elemental shells around the Earth. Above that, of course, we have the Moon, then the planetary spheres, and finally, the sphere of the fixed stars. The heavens, however, from the Moon up, are made of a fifth element called Aether, the famous Aristotelian quintessence. Now, Aether, unlike the sublunary elements, is not subject to decay and things like that, which is why the stars go on forever unchangingly, according to Aristotle's view. This arrangement allows for a completely naturalistic account of how the causes in the Aether are transmitted to the effects that we are interested in, namely the stuff that happens on Earth. Quote, A very few considerations would make it apparent to all that a certain power emanating from the eternal ethereal substance is dispersed through and permeates the whole region about the Earth, which throughout is subject to change, since of the primary sublunary elements, fire and air are encompassed and changed by the motions in the ether, and in turn encompass and change all else, earth and water and the plants and animals therein. End of quote. So the ether affects the fire and air, which then affect the water and earth. It's a bit like a wave propagating in a material medium. As we recall, Aristotle worked out a similar wave motion of causes in the celestial spheres themselves. 
the motion of the outermost sphere, or primum mobile, as Aristotle's Latin reception would call it, affecting the motion of the sphere below it, which in turn affect the motion of the sphere below that, etc., all the way down to the moon, which then affected the sphere of fire, and then all the way down to the earth. So we see a chain of causes, physical causes, beginning at the outermost sphere of the fixed stars and propagating all the way down through the cosmos before terminating in your living room. Nor is Ptolemy just imagining such effects. He hastens to point out obvious examples of undeniable effects on the earth from the stellar bodies. Those of the sun, which governs the seasons, the growth of plants, etc. And, you know, obviously if you stand in the hot sun, you know about it. And of the moon, which governs the tides, and so on. So Aristotle had already pointed these out, see episodes 40 and 41 of the podcast, and it's clear that Ptolemy is part of a very widespread, very involved antique debate over how astrology is supposed to work, and is going to Aristotle for many, but not all, of his ammunition and his arguments. He brings in lots of other arguments we don't find in Aristotle, incidentally, but the general approach, you could say, is Aristotelian. There's elements from Stoic physics in there, and there's a kind of Platonistic, if not Platonist, approach to certain matters, but basically it's safe to call him an Aristotelianizing astrologer. Now, given that that is the case, what is Ptolemy's idea of fate? This is an interesting and complex issue. As we've seen, the Stoics and certain camp of astrologers in antiquity agreed on one thing, absolute determinism. Fate is not only what is destined to happen, it's what was already destined to happen at the beginning of the cosmos. And it encompasses everything, from vast cataclysms to the tiniest flicker of your eye as you look around you. Everything is fated. Now, Ptolemy definitely rejects the total determinism of Stoicism and some contemporary astrology. How he does so is actually quite elegant. There are overarching astral causes, which account for the ineluctable occurrences which mundane or universal astrology looks at. So certain conjunctions will inevitably give rise to certain broad-scale phenomena, and there's nothing anyone can do about it. But between those larger causal networks and the events down here, there are a number of complexities which arise, a circumstance which allows him to introduce chance and also the possibility of intentional intervention into his system as well, leading to a composite theory of fate, whereby some stuff is fated, and he does sometimes talk about fate, but other things are merely made likely by stellar alignments. Tendencies arise. In this latter case, the astrologer is in a position to foresee the likelihood and to take appropriate countermeasures. Quote, some things happen to mankind through more general circumstances and not as the result of an individual's own natural propensities. For example, when men perish in multitudes by conflagration or pestilence or cataclysms through monstrous and inescapable changes in the ambient, for the lesser cause always yields to the greater and stronger. Other occurrences, however, accord with the individual's own natural temperament through minor and fortuitous antipathies of the ambient. For if these distinctions are thus made, it is clear both in general and in particular, whatever events depend upon a first cause, which is irresistible and more powerful than anything that opposes it, must by all means take place. On the contrary, of events that are not of this character, 
those which are provided with resistant forces are easily averted, while those that are not follow the primary natural causes to be sure, but this is due to ignorance and not to the necessity of almighty power. In other words, astrological prediction does not just forewarn you of inevitable things to come, it can also forearm you by providing likely events which you are then at liberty to take measures to avoid or prevent or deflect. And when this doesn't happen, it's not because of fate, it's because there just weren't enough clever astrologers working on the problem. This is an astrology that leaves room for very active human intervention, and this view of fate, Ceteris Paribus, is the one that we find in later Western esotericism. This is the kind of view of fate in which making astral talismans makes sense. Now this is an oversimplification of the story, of course. When we get to both late Platonism and Christian astrology in the podcast, we shall see that there are other ways to manage the problem of freedom versus determinism. Plotinus, for example, will allow that fate functions at the sublunary level, but allows an escape, the sort of back door from its sinister grasp, by positing a higher human self which is not in the cosmos at all, and is just thus not subject to fate in the first place. Those Christian thinkers known as Sethian Gnostics will place an entire world above fate, a much bigger world than the cosmos, and hold out the hope of escaping from here to there. Again, fate is real, and it is astral, but there is a way out. Later Christian astrologers will find other ways to sidestep fate, and the debate also exists, of course, in the Jewish and Islamic hate worlds, all of which we will be discussing in the course of the podcast. Nevertheless, Ptolemy's Tetrabiblos set the pattern for later understandings of the star's vast influence down here, but also of the possibilities of human intervention in the face of that influence. And speaking of influences, let's turn to a few brief comments on Ptolemy's legacy in Western culture and Western esotericism more specifically. Turning to the influence of the Tetrabiblos, it's safe to say, I think, that this is the single most influential work in Western astrology. In recent decades, there has been a resurgence in study of other ancient sources, both among scholars and among astrologers who are really interested in the earlier Hellenistic stuff. But this is a recent phenomenon for the most part, and most of Western astrology, from late antiquity until modern times, has either followed Ptolemy to the letter or taken him as a jumping-off point for further theoretical or practical refinements. He was already influential in late antiquity. We have, for example, a commentary on and a paraphrase of the Tetrabib, both attributed to Proclus, and these survive from antiquity, attesting to at least one author's interest in the text, or perhaps two authors if they're by two different people. In the East Roman realms, the Tetrabiblos was transmitted right through the Middle Ages as far as we can tell, although the manuscript tradition which survives in Greek misses some bits out, so that the text has kind of taken a beating down the centuries as it was copied, but nevertheless pretty substantial manuscripts survive from the 13th century onward, showing that a copying tradition was alive and well, although there are problems here, which we won't get into. The Tetrabiblos was translated into Arabic in the early 9th century by none other than Hunayn ibn Ishaq himself, and from there it became the astrological work par excellence in the Islamicate world, or I should say the astrological primary authority, and there's a lot more to this story, as we shall see. In the Latin world, after several centuries of darkness, when Western Europe languished in apparent ignorance of the astrological art, the text was translated from Arabic into Latin 
in southern Spain in the 12th century, and then later a better translation, direct from the Greek, was made by William of Murbeke in the 13th century, really giving impetus to a flourishing Latinate astrological tradition, which we shall be discussing at length in the podcast. So these are just a few key points in the very complex and crucially important transmission of this text and its many abridgments, commentaries, etc., etc., throughout the West. Now, we've alluded to the importance specifically for Western esotericism of this text, and it might be worth just pointing out here that, as we've mentioned before in the podcast, astrology is really the place where you have to question using the term esoteric at all, because, especially in the case of Ptolemy's Tetrabiblos, which doesn't frame itself as secret knowledge so much as scientific knowledge worthy of the note of everyone who's interested in the truth, it's difficult to see how this can be discussed as esoteric. However, in the kind of universe that Ptolemy sets out, which is very much the kind of universe that the Western esoteric tradition will develop in, we have numerous, call them spin-offs, of this basic astrological cosmos, such as the talisman making, the astral medicine, and many other things that we alluded to earlier, which really do manifest again and again through history as esoteric arts, sometimes even subterranean arts that are illegal in the monotheist regimes under which they flourished, nevertheless, throughout the Middle Ages. So the story of esotericism is certainly intertwined in many ways with astrology in the West, even though it's never a fair thing to call astrology an esoteric art, full stop. And we look forward to detailing and exploring in the podcast some of the amazing intersections between mainstream dominant elite thought and mainstream dominant elite political power with astrology, both as friend and foe. Now, we've hardly done justice to the Tetrabiblos in this episode, either in discussing its theory, and certainly we've left out the practice, or its influence. However, much of this latter story of influence will come to light in the course of the podcast. As for the theoretical side of things, and the question I know many of our listeners are asking right now is, how typical was Ptolemy of post-Hellenistic astronomy astrology? Wasn't determinist fatalism a little more widespread of a paradigm? Well, gentle listener, some of this will perhaps be clarified in our very next episode, when we discuss Vettius Valens, another 2nd century astrologer, the author of an astrological handbook which, unlike Ptolemy's, is full to bursting with actual case studies and horoscopes, and which argues from start to finish for a robust fatalism. So join us then, as if you had a choice. And until that faded moment, stay esoteric, as if you had a choice.